What an honor it is today to bring in a cat that I've been looking for for some time. Um, the uh, the Tulsa area at one time in this country was absolutely magical with so many major, major players, but so much of what was inspiring about that part of the country was the regional rhythm of that country. And uh, my guest was deeply embedded in that and eventually uh, was co-founder of the group Tea Garden and Van Winkle. Uh, one of the most swinging, funky rock groups I've ever heard in my life. It was just V3 and <laughs> drums. Uh, really a decorated career for this cat. Uh, he's played with a lot of iconic people, but his time feel is just hypnotic, and uh, he continues to stay in the groove. David T. Garden, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you. It's a, truly an honor. No, no, it's my honor, brother. I... um. You know, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about growing up and, you know, the old cat, the, the two cats in particular, Chuck Blackwell, Jimmy Carstein. Were, were, were you peers with those cats? Well, I was, uh, they were my idols. As, uh, of course, they were much older than me, and I just kind of followed them around. And they were really welcoming and nice to me. And uh, I don't know what else to say. No, no, I'm curious. When you say when you say they were heroes of yours, I mean, were you one of the cats that would you have to make the, the trip to North Tulsa to, to that part? Can you talk a little bit about when you first saw them live? Uh. I just heard stories about them before actually witnessing their playing. Um, but uh, anyway, I was, golly, I probably was 15, 16 when I started playing out and about in the Tulsa area. And uh, so I think I I saw him first or met him first. Uh, I think I met Chuck Blackwell. I was playing a little club with Don White and Skip Nepay, later Van Winkle. And uh, I kept hearing all these stories about how great Chuck was. And he came in this club. Uh, I think I was probably 15, just turned 16, and was playing in this club. And uh, so it was quite an event to get to meet them. That's also how I met J.J. Kale. He came into that club one weekend and, uh, you know, near quitting time and, and, we all thought, wow, that's, that's Johnny Kale. That's what he went by. The other, the, the, the one, so I just want to go back to, what was this band you were playing in with this cat, White? What, what, what band was this? I was playing with Gene Kroos and the Rockets. Wow. He was the first kind of like Elvis in Tulsa. He wasn't an Elvis imitator, although we did some of his songs. 
but uh, he really was his own Elvis guy. He was his own cat. What's that? He was his own guy. He was he was actually yeah. like his, his own Elvis or whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, there was a guy named Don White playing guitar and singing too as well, and Skip Napay, which is later Van Winkle. Wow. And a bass player, Norman Berg, was the bass player. And Kale came up to us one night and said, hey, I'd like to bring my recorder over and and record you guys on an afternoon, Saturday afternoon or so, uh, before you play that night. You're all set up and everything. So we did that. I'd sure like to have a copy of that tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, but then I was, uh, I was, Gail was my idol as well. And he was into tape recording, and I kind of got into tape recording in a real heavy sense. <laughs> and uh, so we always had a lot to talk about technically with Kale, and and uh, it was fun. I got to be kind of around Karstein and and. Uh, Chuck Blackwell. You, uh, one of one of my friend, one of my dear friends who I haven't actually talked to in a minute, but uh, I love him dearly. I hope he's doing okay. Is Jimmy Lee Keltner, and uh, uh, you know he talked about Blackwell. The first time he saw him was like maybe some sort of Mexican. I don't know if it was a Mexican wedding, but it was like uh, he was on the back of a horse and wagon, and he was. He was playing one hand, he was just playing a snare, and then the other hand, he was playing maracas. And he said it was the most, I can't find the quote right now, it's driving me a little bit crazy, but he said it was the most awe-inspiring thing and actually motivated him to start playing maracas as well. I mean, would you say yeah. that, would, would you say that, that those cats, you know, if, if Dizzy Gillespie came to town or, or Paul Desmond or, or Cal Jader or Brubeck, could those guys play stone jazz gigs? Do you think? Did they? Uh, are you referring to Black? Yeah, Love? I mean, yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about because I'm always fat. Yeah, Chuck and and uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy uh, Carstein, but even I just am trying to look at the uh, the flexibility and the elasticity of the of the language. I know you guys were steeped in, you know, R and B. And the blues, uh, yeah. a lot of that raunchy army. But I'm just, I'm curious if, like, because I know a lot of great drummers that came out of Tulsa that that were from North Tulsa, and I just wanted to know if those cats could play bebop. Well, I don't know. I lived in North Tulsa. You did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, on North Denver Avenue, which is just up the street from where all the Gap Band guys came from. That's right. That's right. And uh, wow. yeah, I was just two blocks near Pine 
And, you know, Gap then was <laughs> Greenwood, Archer, and Pine. And those streets were just real close to my house. I want to be clear, though. Um, was that was North Tulsa still an all-black commerce town at that time, or was it integrated? No, it was still quite integrated at some point. Wow. They were, it was, we were just a few blocks uh, west of where that, uh, you know, they had a, they called it a race riot. Right, the, the Tulsa Mass, you were just a little bit, you were close to that. Yeah. However, I mean, that was the 20s. Right, right. No, I'm, I'm curious about, like, at that time, uh, I mean, you were living, that must have been, because, I mean, even guys, I correct me if I'm wrong, but, I mean, I I was pretty sure that, I mean, you're the first cat, I think, that I knew that lived in North Tulsa. Maybe Leon did, but I think most of those guys had to go, if they wanted to find the black music, they had to go to North Tulsa. You already lived there. <laughs> yeah, I did, and it was interesting. Can you talk a little bit as as a, as a can you just talk about? Uh, we're so sort of. Uh, it's, I live in Tucson, Arizona, and it's very ethnic and and ra multiracial. But yeah, you know, it was. I'm not saying it was a better time or a worse. I mean, I'm just curious if you could talk a little about how it affected your sort of worldview, just sort of growing up in that part of the country in a primarily black part of a historic black part of town well uh i mean it's very unique you know it's all i'm saying like it's a, it, you don't run across a lot of cats that had that experience well it's weird because we were kind of right on the line uh on the street i lived on i mean Years before, yeah. uh, there were, uh, I think the Ku Klux Klan had a big meeting place. There was a guy in Tulsa that had the, was always wanting to be the national Ku Klux Klan guy. Oh, the, oh, the grand, the grand master? Kind of. Yeah. 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 This was, and wait, was this in the 40s? When was this? Well, no, it'd been it was from the twenties on. Wow, wow. And uh, so I didn't I didn't move over or we didn't my family didn't move over there till I was about five and a half, six years old in the early fifties. And uh, it was kind of amazing the history around my neighborhood that had been all white. And uh, wow. anyway, we were just up the street from uh, this Brady, Tate Brady, I think his name was, that had a big, beautiful mansion. And uh, he was quite significant in the, in the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. But I never did know him. I think No. He... I mean was was it cool for you as a boy 
to go out and play with other with kids of color was that or was was would your family yeah like why would your how from your point of view were your folks a very I'm just always interested in, you know that we lost a great um I'm gonna get too off track here but we lost this incredible upright bass player uh Richard Davis uh, uh you know thousands of sessions and he he when I interviewed him way back when I mean he didn't even want to talk about his career because he was spending most of his time in the music department at the University of Wisconsin talking to younger students about uh equality and uh, racial equality because there's just a lot of a lot of people a lot of white cats that come from the Midwest and they're told a lot of things uh, by their families, the cultural bias that if you're in a room with a black man, God forbid, you know, you're going to get raped. There's just a lot of dogma <laughs> out. There's just a lot of dogma out there. And then it was his job to Let's sort of, you know, sort of walk them off the off the cliff, so to speak. But I'm just curious, your parents, did they see skin color? Were they just very open minded? I think it's amazing that you had that experience growing up. Well, it was a weird and different experience in that my father, I never met my father. He passed away six months before I was born. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I don't know where, so I had a single mother <laughs> and she raised, I had a older brother who was about 17 at the at that time I was born and a sister that was 12 or so and uh, so I don't know they were my my mother was quite liberal and uh, and you know thought knew and taught us that or taught me, anyway, that uh, the blacks were being put upon and had always been. Hmm. So I kind of always had a special thing in my heart for the, the, the black population. Talking to David T. Garden here on the Jake Feinberg Show, just absolute honor to be talking to this cat um going back to that question though i mean was there a was there a as you got older and a little bit more sophisticated was there a a club that was playing that you could go and see potentially bebop or post-bop jazz i'm just curious about again going back to blackwell uh those or those mentors of yours where you just heard stories uh because you know earl palmer uh, you know, uh, the list sure. goes on. The list goes on. All those guys, you know, all those cats. I mean, one of the reasons that those records with the Wrecking Crew sound so freaking good is because Hal Blaine was obsessed with bebop. I mean, all those guys were, you know, putting in these these uh, polyrhythms into rock music, which is why it was so intoxicating. And I'm just curious about if you, obviously you guys weren't trying to be beboppers, but what was the closest experience you had to uh, a you know jazz club in that North Tulsa area. Well, uh, interestingly enough, there was a guy that uh, had a lot of money. 
<laughs> the, right, philanthropist. Yeah, love it. Well, he really later was, but he was well, <laughs> yeah. a young guy. Right, right. Uh, he opened a club called the Rubiot, and uh, wow. it, he played piano, jazz, and he had a bass player named John Rigney, upright bass player, and he had a couple of different drummers, and uh, his wife, Sonny Gray was the guy's name that owned the club, the Rubiot, and his wife sang with the group, and they were, I, I was just blown away by them. And sometimes people come into town for appearances, and uh, like it was Peter, Paul, and Mary came into town till wow. wow, at the concert and. I think it was Peter Yarrow played bass and came out to the Rubiot and sat in. And no, he did. Wait, wait. Yarrow was on upright bass fiddle? Yeah. Oh, dude, this is blowing my... Because I interviewed Peter, but the last thing I ever thought was that he would be in a, in a jazz club. <laughs> that is unbelievable. I know. It was crazy. And through uh, this Sonny Gray and his club. He later moved the club. He built, that was in a little strip center, that original Rubiot. And at one time, he built a brand new club. It was, it was kind of a supper club. And I bought my first tape recorder from Sonny Gray. And, uh, God, it was quite an adventure because he'd hire me uh, a couple of weeks out of the year. He and his wife would take off a vacation. They'd go to New York or Chicago and sure. visit some of the jazz clubs. And he'd hire somebody to come into his club. And he had uh, Paul Winter's sextet. Dude, this which, cat was the hippest dude, man. So he'd go to New York and be like, he'd make connections and then say, hey, come down to my club in Tulsa. Yeah. And uh, wow. so when he'd go on those uh, vacation trips, he'd have me come in the club and run the lights which wouldn't you just kind of turn them on? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and on Saturday nights, he owned a Sonny Gray owned a, a an FM stereo radio station, and they do live from the Ruby out on Saturday nights. God, it was cool. Wow. Uh, by the way, I want to. I found the quote. I got to read this to you. This is from Keltner. Did you know Keltner, by the way? I didn't know him back then. You know, because his daughter, his sister, tragically died 
His mom had a nervous breakdown and his family shipped him down to rural Louisiana. So it's possible. You guys were roughly the same age, I think. But this is his story about Chuck Blackwell. <clears throat> Chuck had already moved to L.A. at this point. He said Chuck was doing TV shows at that time with Delaney Bramlett. Chuck was playing with maracas in his right hand and a stick in his left. I thought the last time I saw that was a Mexican guy on a flatbed truck in Tulsa. My dad had taken me to see this band that were some friends of his. I was really young, but I remember seeing the drummer playing with maracas in his hand. I didn't cool. understand. I didn't understand what he was, why he was doing it, what he was doing at that time. When I saw Chuck doing it in rock and roll, I started to do it. And sure enough, Keltner's playing maracas with Ringo on some of those Beatles, on some of those, uh, anyway, Chuck Blackwell, I mean, it, it's it, the, the amount of like, the amount of accessibility and authenticity of that music that where you were coming from was absolutely unmistakable. And you got to play with really, you know, sort of the, some cats uh, from a much earlier lineage in the music. I, I have to say, I, I um, uh, Van Winkle. I just, I just connected with the uh, these classic brothers that you probably knew or know, know was the uh, the Hodge brothers. Did you know Catfish and Dallas Hodge at all? Yeah. But I, yeah, well, just because like it was beautiful because they they mentioned that, and they were playing with, they were playing with Van Winkle off and on in L.A. And I'm thinking, then I reach, all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I'm talking about your son now. Holy cow! I'm like, is that <laughs> is that Tea Garden son? I'm like, so it just all came to fruition, man. And I, you know, because you guys, can you just talk about the concept of organ and drums it was it was a common thing i've talked to cats who were playing hotel gigs and you know occasionally you'd have a sat it was basically sometimes you'd have a trio of sax drums and organ but what was the what was the birth of of that concept with you guys oh i, gosh, I don't know we we've often discussed the origins of some of the different kinds of music and styles, but that's what we continually <laughs> discuss. Well, talk talk about the blending of style. What was the co conceptually? What what were what would you guys talk about? Like what made you play bass? Um, well, there's no right talk, answer. You you go wherever your mind takes you. You don't have to worry about answering correctly. Don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but we had so many influences, it was just unbelievable. Um, but I have to tell you a little bit about the the origin of Tea Garden and Van Winkle. Please, please. But that would take us about two weeks. Well, no, you <laughs> know what? I mean, this is only set one. So why don't you just give us a little appetizer? I mean, like, let, let's just talk about like, because you know what? I mean, did you, I guess maybe, maybe the better question is, did you see some cats doing that? And that was inspiring setting aside your musical tastes. What was the idea? Well, of, 
the behind just the idea of it's the coolest concept. I think it's going to come back at some point in, in our culture. Just having a guy kicking pedals and a dude on drums and playing organ. That's the coolest <laughs> stuff around, man. Well, it was pretty unique at the time mm-hmm. and still is. But uh, we, uh, one day, we Skip and I have been wanting to always work together. We were kind of brothers in a sense. And uh, we got a gig in Tulsa, or we had a gig, played every night, six nights a week. And uh, we were playing one night, and there was some guy that was in the crowd just hopping tables. And people was thinking maybe he was a narc or something. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And we had a white guy singing with us that was from Kansas, but all he sang were Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett kind of stuff. And so this guy came up to me on on a break. The name of our group at that time was LSD and C. Oh, wait a minute. LSD and C? Yeah. Love, Skip, Dave, and Carl. Carl was the singer. That, well, I thought it was maybe an acronym for something else. That is legendary. Yeah. <laughs> Skip came up with that idea. I love it. And so at the time, Anyways, it was, it, I'm just going to be clear, that band, putting the singer aside, that was a trio or a duo? Yeah, it was a trio. Trio. I mean, because the singer didn't play an instrument, but he sang. Right. And so this guy came up and was hopping tables and acting kind of weird. He came up to me on a break and he said that, uh, man, he he said, I'm Jim Cassidy. I'm from Detroit. You guys need to come to Detroit. You just blow them away. Whoa. And. uh, Whoa. So I said, yeah, okay. We traded phone numbers, although he said, although I cannot, he was on his way to California, and a big rainstorm had hit, and he had to pull over, and that's how come he was staying in Tulsa that night. And uh, he said, unfortunately, I can't get you guys to Detroit. Because I'm on a mission, I'm working on uh, Bobby Kennedy's election. Wow! Wow! And and they're having the thing in in California, the runoff. And of course, we all know that a week later, Jim Castley called me. He said, "Well, my game's over." Right? No, it, I can't believe you're talking about this because. Going back to Keltner, he was in L.A. at that time playing a gig, and Robert Kennedy's detail was supposed to show up late uh, like, for a later set, and they never did. And uh, 
And there was all this commotion around the TV and Wilton Felder, the great bass player, was reading his Bible. Keltner went back there. He's like, what's going on? He's like, well, I don't know. Someone got hurt, shot. And that was the night. I can't. So that was 67 kind of area. Yeah. 1967. So so he couldn't. So you, you guys called him eventually, maybe a few weeks after the horrible situation? No, he called us. He called me. Wow. He said, well, my gig's over, and I'm going right back to Detroit. So you guys got to come to Detroit. And I said, yep, sounds good to me. I, we were, I was all in with Motown thing and all that. And uh, I don't know. So I kept talking to the guys. Skip and this Carl, the singer. Carl said he would, he definitely wasn't going to go. And Skip really didn't want to go, but I just told him, I said, we got to, we got to get known in a bigger market. We're never going to make it from just being from Tulsa. And he said, okay. I <laughs> Yeah. And so I called up Jim Cassidy and said, okay, we're coming. And uh, he said, oh, that's great. Yeah, good. And so he had, an, he didn't like the name uh, we were going under, but he said it ought to be Tea Garden and Van Winkle. He didn't like LSD and C. Yeah. T. Van Winkle, yeah. And uh, he said, I picture Van Winkle in overalls, kind of like uh, Rip Van Winkle. Right. I don't know. So, no, what I, this is important because I, I just interviewed Dallas Hodge and he said T. Garden and Van Winkle came to Detroit in the late 60s. We did a show with them at this big horse farm. Do you remember that horse farm? No. <laughs> they, we played so many gigs. No, was... I'm just, you know what it is? I'm, you know what I'm curious about is there was clearly, there were so many clubs in Detroit, but, you know, the 20 grand, would, you know, that was primarily a black club, although, you know, soul clubs were playing post-bop there. Um, you know, you then you had... You know, bowling alleys, uh, you know, uh, East Warren Lanes, which was always, I mean, I remember these, the, the, the great, there was a great organ drum duo on the West Coast, uh, John Allaire, who still plays with Van Morrison today, and, and Pete Lynn, they were playing bowling alleys. But when you, when you guys first got to Detroit, even though you had a connection there, what were some of the clubs you guys were, were playing? Were you playing black clubs or where were you playing? Anywhere we could get booked. Anywhere the, there was a gig. Yeah. My my intent was to do an album of original songs. And uh, we worked, gosh, I don't know, we worked four or five months on writing some an album for the songs. And... Uh, which I give most credit to Skip because he <laughs> he needed music and I need drums. 
and uh, so you're talking we, when you when I just want for the for the audience when they hear that he he knew arranging composition you knew rhythm and parts is that right I guess that sounds good to me all right <laughs> yeah and uh, so this Jim Castley was quite a he was quite a promoter and he had a lot a lot of friends and he booked us in a lot of little clubs it was weird because most of the clubs we played i don't know there weren't even clubs they would there punch andrews who was uh, later uh, I mean, at the time, Seeger's manager. Right. He would, he'd rent a school cafeteria on a weekend and oh. they'd, call, they'd call it a club. <laughs> this is the way, that's okay, but I'm just saying that, that the music feels, not that there are live recordings from you in a cafeteria, but the music felt <laughs> so good because there were just these makeshift clubs everywhere, you know? Yeah, and they'd they'd have, you know, like we'd play, we'd open maybe the show, and then I was a guitar player. Was it Den Den Dennis Coffee? Well, he was around that. Oh my, he's a dear friend too. I love dude. I mean, because dude, you and I think I'm just wondering. You know, you were infatuated with Motown. Did you? Uh, I mean, they were pretty ensconced in the studio, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just swirling around with incredible, incredible musicians. Um, so you played cafeterias. Was there, was there any, what th this, uh, can you spell the, the guy's last name, the, the, the connected guy from Detroit? How do you spell his name? Castle uh -huh. Castle Oh, shit. Cassily, Jim Cassily, C-A-S-S-I-L-Y. So would uh, he try to put you on, I mean, first of all, I mean, nobody was trying to pigeonhole. You guys were like, to me, a psychedelic blue-eyed soul funk group. Um, you know, would he yeah, put you, would you. He, yeah, I mean, <laughs> would, would, he, would he put you with like, the Amboy Dukes? Would he would he put you with like I'm curious yes. about some of the bills yeah. that you, you shared early on that he would put you on? Yeah. We played with the, maybe four groups. And uh we'd open the deal and then Amboy Dukes, Ted Nugent. Uh MC five MC five? Oh yeah. We call we we referred to that as circus music. <laughs> dude, I am loving this, dude. That is exactly what that is. Yeah. And Ted Nugent was always trying to do some kind of show business thing. He 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 dressed in some kind of I don't know had a Tarzan. Right, yeah, like let like patched leather suit. Yeah, and, and he did a thing where he'd dive off a, a speaker's 
be those beaters with a he had a line he'd swing out and it'd always go wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, the, yeah there, I mean, he was, well, he was on the bandstand with, he, he was interesting his early years, but he was obviously still trying to be a showman at that time. Yeah. I know one time he, he had a fake wall of speakers and he, uh, we played some Halloween gig and he had one of the roadies put, put a pumpkin on top of the amp stack and he pulled out a shotgun and almost shot the roadie. Oh my God, dude. Some things never change, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, Anyway, but I do have to think he was he was really a nice guy, Ted was. Somebody put the all these Detroit bands on a little tour. We went with it. I don't know, we played some farm in New York. Really? But, yeah. And they had the organ. We had to lift that organ up onto a stage. Oh was, my God. Uh, which turned out was kind of a roof of a barn. And we got that organ up there, and they had a generator that created the power for the band. And it didn't work well with the organ. We turned the organ on, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so they go, "Well, we're screwed," because you know Skip plays bass, and right? Everything else, we both sang, and we said, "God, we're in trouble. We just can't do this." And Ted said, "Well." I'll just play, I'll play bass because Skip had an electric piano that he set on, on top of the organ. So he saved our butts on that game. Yeah, wait, hold, wait, you're telling me Nugent played, stepped, stepped in and played bass? Yeah. Oh, uh, this is the greatest because he was telling me early on, even before the Amboy Dukes, that he would be, you know, he'd get called for you know, he might wind up on the bandstand with Bo Diddley or, you know, if he was coming through town and needed to pick up a rhythm section, it just sort of was mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, I guess he was a heck of a bass player too. I mean, that is, you're telling me this was in New York city proper or were you up in upstate New York? You said it was a barn. Probably upstate. Yeah, it was kind of, a, it was an outdoor deal. Wow. And uh, anyway, I don't know. And we we had lots of stories. <laughs> well, you're doing. I, it. I mean, I'm having. A, I mean, this is mind. I I want to ask you though about in mod in modern times, bands. A lot of bands. Um, they they're very caught up in making album after album after album after album, and because of a lack of a touring circuit really a domestic touring circuit, a vibrant one in this country, 
a lot of the time the studio stuff just sits on a shelf and sort of atrophies and, and gathers dust. And I'm just wondering, uh, your philosophy as a band, Tea Garden and Van Winkle, did you believe in road testing a lot of new material before you would go in the studio so that the songs oh. would take on, so the songs yeah. would take on a life of their own? Sometimes <laughs> we did both, you know, we just, uh, but it was interesting that uh, we had so many incredible moments. I don't know, one time we played, uh, we got booked a weekend in Boston and we opened for Bo Diddley. Uh, was it? I'm trying to think who it was. Maybe Bo Diddley. No. B.B. King. Okay. Wow. And uh, so we opened. B.B. King played after us. And and we closed the show out. But when we played our first set, we went to go eat while B.B. King was did his show. And then we would come back, and we came back. B.B. was playing, but we got in the uh, dressing room, and uh, there was, what's his name? <laughs> Bobby Blueland or something? No, it was a real hippie guy. Was... Frank Zappa was sitting in our dressing room playing guitar. No way. And uh, first of all, he he it's funny you say that he was the farthest thing from a hippie, but that that's fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think he hated hippies, but you know, the, I, he looked like it. He kind of looked like that. He, you're telling me a, a Zappa was in. You opened a gig for BB King. In, in Boston, and Zappa's in the dressing room playing guitar. Yeah. And and the manager of the club came up to us and said, "Zappa wants to sit in with BB King." But after he, something about when he's finished with his set, his band doesn't want to stick around. So you go ahead and play your set, and maybe and BB will play with Frank Zappa and you guys, and. Uh, I thought, yeah, this can't work. <laughs> Zappa's about, uh, you know, 10,000 miles away from B.B. King. But anyway, we agreed to it and went up on stage. And there's Frank Zappa and B.B. King. Uh, dude, you're blowing my mind right now. Had a couple, a couple of horn players uh, in BB's band stay got up on stage with us, and we roared into first song 
and one of the horn players kept motioning to me and I, I couldn't tell what he was trying to tell me. He said, no, you're playing wrong. You're not playing. <laughs> and so when, the, when that song finished, I jumped up. He sat down, the horn player sat down and played. And I don't know what, I never knew what it was I didn't do right. But uh, anyway, we finished the gig that night. The next day, being Sunday, we headed back to Detroit, where we were living. And we got in late Sunday night, and our manager called us and said that he just got a call from Frank Zappa's management, and Frank wanted us to open for him on Wednesday night in I think Ottawa. Oh, this is unbelievable. You gotta be kidding. What what is this like 69, 70? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so he so and Ottawa so that was north of the border and you got what you said yes or what what happened? So we did play the gig. It was a weird gig. We, <laughs> I'm sure it was a weird gig. <laughs> We did our opening set, and then Zappa came on with his band. He had a real big band. He did, yeah. 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 Seemed like maybe a couple of drummers and a bunch of guitar players and at least one or two keyboard players. And they played, their set was, they just started a song and played for two hours. Exactly, just seamlessly, yeah. Just continuous. Right. And, and that was it. We got our money and went home. <laughs> <laughs> it was a one-night, one-off gig. It wasn't like a tour. Yeah. yeah. Did you, you know, I remember, did you, I know you knew that band, uh, the Jazz Crusaders? Well, I knew of them. You knew of them, so... The late great Joe Sample, I interviewed him twice, and he was talking about when they were the Nighthawks, and this is in the mid '60s, so you were still in Tulsa. But they, you know, they'd be on these Chitlin Circuit tours, and he'd show up at the club, and they were traveling in a VW bus, so everybody had their saxophones and trombones and drum set, but he couldn't bring a a B3 on the road or so he would show up and he's like, what kind of dog du jour do I have tonight? Broken black keys, broken white keys early on in touring did was skip able to bring his own rig or did you sometimes have to play the dog du jour based on what the club had? Now we, we worked on, uh, on skip's B3 organ where we cut it down and put it in a box with <laughs> we put casket handles on oh the box <laughs> and it set on some legs so he could use the foot pedals, you know. Right. And uh so we did we carried that thing, it was like three hundred and fifty pounds at least. 
we had to carry it up all kinds of stairs, <laughs> loaded into the pickup. That was crazy. You talk about some of those early tours. I mean, did you have any kind of roadie support, or were you breaking down your gear after the gig? I'm, I mean, to me, it's like, I mean, you you know, today you see quartets, quintets. You guys are just a duo. I mean, can you talk about some of those tours? Would you, like, how far west would you go? Would you do the Mountain West? Would you do more of the, the Rust Belt? Can you just talk about some of those early road dog tours you guys were on? Well, typically, out of Detroit, where we were based out of, we, uh, we would play weekends somewhere. A lot of times in Canada. Or Ontario, which right. is across the river. We played, you know, Toronto and uh, yeah, every town in <laughs> London, Ontario, and gigs like that. And uh, I don't know. We, it was crazy. But we had we did have some roadies. We had typically had two roadies, and uh, they were great guys. And uh, they would they kind of load everything, unload everything, and then we, you know, do the final setup ourselves. Right. You and the and the the money. That's the other thing that's interesting nowadays is just uh, bands that tour, you know, they they make money off the merch ta merchandise tables. But the, I, I think the bread for the gigs was pretty good when at, during your time, right? You got paid pretty well for the, the actual gig itself. No. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe not as much. As you, I mean, were you getting ripped off? Were the times cats wouldn't pay you? No, it wasn't. It wasn't that. It's just the money wasn't that great, right? Uh, but I mean, comparatively speaking, you, you the cost of living wasn't as high, you know. Yeah, and we we got along somehow, and uh, I don't know. Our first record, we that Jim Castle, being our manager, set up a deal. He, he thought that we should record a live album being our first album. And uh, so he he rented a club called the Red Carpet Club in Detroit. And he was real good about notifying everyone in the media that this was going to be Garden and Van Winkle were recording an album live uh, and oh, free beer. <laughs> Wait a minute. Your first, you guys also, I mean, first of all, this guy is sounds like the hippest cat in the world, Cassily. Um, <laughs> did he just feel like you guys were gonna you, he to capture the true tea garden and van winkle sound? It was going to be in the live setting. He felt that was the, that would be the case. Yeah, if you could get, I mean, because it worked. His deal 
we had we had all the songs I we recorded all those eight or nine songs we did in two sets and people showed up all the TV stations all the newsprint people showed up free beer you know you can't resist you can't that. go wrong with that no and uh, so when the album came out it was just crazy we we had a friend that uh, we had met up there another friend at Cassley's and he worked at Motown what was his name Oh, I don't know. It's been so long ago, but... Right, but I just want to be clear. Motown was still making records in Detroit at that time. Yeah. Got it. And so this guy was an accountant for, <laughs> for uh, Motown, and he got us a deal. Uh, he named the pressing plants. And he put up some money, and we we got the picture. We found that there was a mansion at uh, there in Detroit, and he had us. He signed it. It was had been vacant for years, and uh, it was called the Fisher Estate. Wow, Your body by Fisher. Right. <laughs> okay. So we got a deal from them. We could take a picture in front of that house, the Fisher Estate, and for a dollar, we got permission. And it was weird because Cassidy had Skip dressed up with overalls on and a rifle. And I had flowers in one hand. Right. That was like the classic Vietnam era, you know, stick yeah. the, stick the flowers in the right in the guns, you know? Yeah. And as soon as they snapped the picture, we heard put the gun down immediately. <laughs> and about fifty SWAT guys came oh out from God. The and uh, I guess somebody had seen there's some hippies with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> get them, get them. Holy, yeah. wait a minute. That because that, that like that house looks like it's in like Gross Point or something. That was yeah. in Detroit. Was that outside of Detroit? Where was that place? That was right in like around Gross Point. Oh my, I, dude, I felt it the minute I saw the album. I was like, this house is Regal, and who is Tea Garden and Van Winkle? And then I threw the album on, and it's the most burning album I've ever heard. It's swinging so hard in there. <laughs> it is well, swinging, you. man. Anyway, so uh, somehow, I don't know how it happened, but there was a radio station in Detroit, FM radio station 
was the first 24-hour albums only. Yeah, album-oriented radio. Yeah. It, and I don't the minute we put the album out, this radio station, WABX FM, started playing it in rotation. And we got a call from Atco Records, and they wanted to buy the album. And we thought, Atco, oh, man, we've hit it big time. Big time. Because that's, you know, it's I mean, that's, that's Dusty Springfield. That's, what, Otis Red. That's all those cats. Yeah. And uh, so we sold it to them. And I don't know, we probably sold 10,000 or so and went in to do our next album with them and they dropped us. <laughs> that coach ended up dropping us and, and, and hired a, a competing duo. And I can't remember the guy's name. The drummer was Frosty. Oh my! Wait a wait. It was Lee Michaels. Lee Michaels, dude. Frosty, you. I, I just want to stop right there. Please tell me about Fr Frosty. Was you? You and him must have been having good time. I mean, you didn't see each other all the time, but that is classic, dude. That dude was one of the greatest drummers ever. Yeah, and uh, he was quite good, but I had never heard him. But it was oh, weird. So, so, so T, you guys were the forerunner. You guys were the first, and then Adco moved on to Lee Michaels after that. Yes, it was weird. Our manager called us and said, uh, "This coming weekend, we were supposed to play at the little club that Punch Andrews owned it." Oh. And anyway, they said uh, Adco, Ahmet Erdogan was going to come to Detroit and come see us at this club. And we were all jazzed up thinking, wow, this is great. And he did come, but Lee Michaels played in town at another place that same night. And he came over to our club and sat in. And that's when, <laughs> after that weekend, when we heard that uh, Adco had dropped us and signed Lee Michaels. And we were bummed severely. Oh, when, when someone like that would... So like Skip would switch over to electric piano and Lee would play organ or how, how would that, when, when someone would sit in, how would that work? No, they, uh, he, he could play, Lee Michaels played left hand bass on the B3. So right. they just played, played, you know, left hand bass. And Frosty played drums. And Let me ask got, you, I, I know this is, so I just want an evening at home, 
with T-Guard and Van Winkle, that was, you're saying that was your first album and that was on ATCO or was that a different title? That later turned out to be on ATCO. So, the, but, yeah. the original label on the evening at home was Plum, P-L-Q-M-M or M-B or something. Plum. <laughs> Like Whoa. a plump bob. Yeah. And like I said, we then our second album was called But Anyhow. And that one sold about 2000, and that's when they signed Lee Michaels. I see. So they gave you a two record deal. Yeah. When did, when did God, God Love and Rock and Roll, that tune, when, when did that, so when did that, uh, when did that come to fruition? Well, that's a pretty, that's kind of an involved and interesting story. I had become, I had friend, become friends with Leon Russell oh. through all my Tulsa sure. people and had lived at Leon's house in what? LA. Yeah. Well, did you did you know him very well when you guys were gigging down there before Cassidy brought you up to Detroit? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so you stayed in touch with Leon. Yeah, we stayed in touch, and I lived in his house out in L.A. And yeah, it was that was just an amazing experience. Leon would leave about ten o'clock in the morning to go do sessions and uh, you know with the what they call them the wrecking crew wrecking crew yeah dude I, i'm james burton and all those cats yeah i'm glenn campbell and, oh my god those guys were the baddest cats man yeah and that's when i first met hell blaine holy cow wait hold on for a second you're you make you make the second album, um, Atco drops you, and then Leon's like, "Hey, why don't you guys come on out to L.A. for a minute?" No, okay. I had been in L.A. previous to Skip and I being T Garden and Van Winkle. Really? Yeah, I'm not that okay. So, well, so okay, so you were. When you were out there trying to make it big time, getting the studio scene out there, what were you doing out there? Yes. <laughs> yes to both those things. Uh, Leon had a studio in his house, which was unheard of at the time. He had a four-track, big Ampex, four-track recorder, and... Leon would leave about 10 in the morning to go do sessions and Kale would show up at the house and work all day on his stuff. And he, Kale had just written a song called After Midnight. Yeah. And, uh, and Leon had teamed up with the uh, Oh, I can't. A guy named Snuff Garrett. Sure, sure. Who had been uh, for years 
A and R guy at Liberty Records. That's right. And so Leon had teamed up with Snuff Garrett, and they had been doing working on all the Gary Lewis stuff. Absolutely. Uh, Keltner was in that band. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And uh, wow, I was trying to get. What, what year were you out there? What year was that? That's about sixty-five. I mean, you met Blaine. Did you meet I mean, you? You met Blaine in the studio. This is legendary stuff. I mean, because his studio scene then really. I mean, it was Tommy Tedesco, Carol Kay. Yeah. I mean, it must. I can't believe you had the audacity to go out. That you went out there because Leon's like, why don't you take a crack at it? What What was the impetus to go out there? Yeah, Leon wanted me to help assist in the studio right right and so i i kind of learned it all from kale who was coming up every day and kale was writing and producing his stuff and at one point i guess uh, snuff garrett had finally talked kale into uh releasing after midnight and so, I don't know, Kale came to me, and I had just talked Skip into moving in with with me at Leon's house. Right. And so, Kale came to me and said, would you, and Skip, mind, I've got to cut a B-side for After Midnight. Would you mind doing that? And so, no. <laughs> Let me think about one fiftieth of a second. <laughs> right. And we we hauled that B three up the front steps and into Leon's house in the studio. And I don't know. I don't remember the song, but. I think it was called slow motion. And so we recorded it. And uh, then Kale was supposed to turn it into the record company. And he did. About two weeks later, there was a knock on the door in the morning at about 930 in the morning. And it was UPS guy. And he said, I've got some packages here. Yeah, bring them in and and uh, set them there by the door as Leon was coming down the stairs to go do sessions. And he said, what's all that? And I said, well, it's just the delivery from UPS. He said, oh, well, that's Kale's record. Holy cow. And they were singles. And he broke open a box, and he said, oh, damn. I said, what? Just as Kale was walking in the door, and Leon said, Kale, here's your records, but they screwed it up, and slow motion is on the A side. <laughs> After- I'm sorry, that's not, I'm sure he was not amused by that. Well, Leon was upset, and Kale said, 
Oh, no, I did that. What? I said, what? They said, yeah, uh, you know, how the last thing you record is always the best. So he told them. Dude, that, that guy, cool. man. Dude, first of all, I'm looking at this seven inch single you're talking about, 45. Yeah. On Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> Snuff Garrett production. Man, I mean, <laughs> the median price for this single is $41. Really? I mean, dude, I, 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 I'm saying, I, I, this is, you're telling me that slow motion is you and Skip and Kale. Yeah. And oh, I think, we, so I think Leon put on a, a guitar solo, a backward guitar solo. <laughs> so and, this is getting better and better. Wait, so when, did they still... Uh, you gotta. I'm just so not into the pop, the mainstream stuff. I mean, when uh, did did After Midnight have any radio play with the, the Kale version, or did was it only when Clapton did? No, it was only Delaney and Bonnie and all those guys. Right. Um, went out on the road with. Uh, Clapton was playing with somebody. You're darn right he was. Yeah. Yeah. And but Delaney and Bonnie were on the gig with him and so they do a lot of jamming in the you know, in the back room and all this kind of stuff. And that's when Delaney told Gail, I mean told Eric. You know, Eric was looking for some songs, <coughs> and excuse me. Yeah. So he got him turned on to Gail's version of After Midnight. Oh my God! And the rest is history. <laughs> um. Did Did you um? So. Before we, we're gonna to have to do set two. Can we do set two maybe next week? Is that I got I got a lot more to ask you, but I mean we've been cooking for about seventy minutes here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My final question is in set one here, Dave. David is um <clears throat> when you guys when Atco dropped you, uh, God love and rock and roll. Was that a tune that you had been playing live before you cut it in the studio? Or was uh, that something that you just came up? I mean, ultimately, and I and then I get I guess ultimately, can you just talk about um were you guys prepared? Was the was the record company prepared? I remember talking to Brian Jackson, who was Gil Scott Heron's right hand man for many years and they did that tune, The Bottle, and they did it on this very uh, small label called Strata East in New York. And the 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 song just took off and they didn't have any apparatus to actually move the records. They had boxes of records in their kitchen. You know, they couldn't get it out fast enough. Yeah. So I'm just curious about, like, were you got did you have the apparatus in place in order to drive that record out and then ultimately uh 
were you hearing that on the radio? What what that feeling was like? I know you had heard your tunes before, but the fact that this one was really becoming popular. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was a weird story how that song came about. God love and rock and roll. Uh, I was still in. Yeah, would uh, I got a call from. Leon one night and he said uh, well I put this band together with Joe Cocker and it's called Mad Dogs and Englishmen <laughs> <laughs> yeah they and, had, they, it was uh, double drums with Jim Gordon and Keltner yeah yeah, and, uh, and another guy Sandy Konikoff Sandy Connick, good dude. You are on fire. This is brilliant. You're darn right. But anyway, so he said we're going to play our first gig in Detroit. So you need to come see us, and we're going to stay at the Holiday Inn, so and so. And I'll call you when we get in. I said okay, and there were a bunch of Tulsa people on that gig, and. Uh, I had never met Keltner before, but he was on the gig, of course. But anyway, when they got in, he called me, and I rushed over to the hotel, and he said, do you know a guy named Russ Gibb? And from Detroit, he was a promoter. And I said, yeah, I do. He runs a club. And uh, he's quite a promoter. And he said, well, he's flying over in a helicopter, going <laughs> to land here in about an hour, and is trying to get me to get Joe Cocker to play a gig that they're going to do, that this Russ Gibb is going to promote uh, this coming up in three or four months. And it was a festival. It was and." uh Goose Lake was the name of the festival. So we, the helicopter landed. And we got in with Russ Gibb and his and the pilot. <laughs> and Russ Gibb kept saying, "Well, we'll give you ten thousand dollars." And uh, Leon said, "No, that won't work. Our tour's going to be over by then." And uh, he said, well, how about 20000 <laughs> And Leon said, no, I don't think we can. So they anyway, we flew over to the site, which is a rural place, you know, farm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and they had built a studio. I mean, they had built, they were building the bandstand. And it was like a big circular deal where they could set up the band on one side and then set up another band on the other side of the stage and revolve the stage so there wouldn't be any downtime. Oh, so anyway, it, was a, it was a revolving, It was there was multiple bands playing at one time. No, just one band, but right. when the band had finished and walk off stage, they'd the stage crew would turn that, that 
turntable. I got it. I got. Yeah, I got it. So there was always music going on, right? Yeah. And uh, so anyway, but they didn't do it. But that Russ Gibb booked Skip and I and one other guy to MC the whole three-day show. And it turned out there were close to 300,000 showed up for that. What was this called? What was the festival called again? Goose Lake. How do you spell that? Goose, like the the goose. (laughs) Oh, Goose Lake. Goose Lake. Goose Lake Music Festival. And uh, it was a three-day event, and tons of people played on it. Wow. You know, MC5 and Rodster played on it. The band called Chicago. Yep. And uh, maybe the American Breed or some of those Chicago bands. Yeah. And Skip and I played every evening about six in the evening. Oh, this is so beautiful, man. And, uh, we thought, God, we're going to be giant stars. <laughs> Had you oh, already? That, were you playing that 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 tune? Were you already playing "God Love and Rock and Roll"? Uh, yeah, I think by then we were. But getting back to uh, yeah, God, now I've got off the train. <laughs> Goose, Goose Lake, Goose Lake. Yeah, but but I'm getting back to God Love and Rock and Roll. When Leon played, you know, did the Joe Cocker and the right, Mad right, and Angus, right, right. They did two nights at the uh, at the East Town Theater. That was their first gig, and of course, I was all excited to be able to see all my Tulsa friends and uh, and kind of participate. But that caused Leon was kind of into black gospel. Absolutely. And, and Skip and I went both nights and he just threw us up on stage. I think I played some maracas or something. And uh, Skip then Sunday morning after the, that gig, uh, Skip and I were living together, and he said, "Hey, I've got this song," and he sat down at the piano and played it for me. And it, he said, "Does that sound too much like uh, there was a, a a song that won a? I think it won a." Grant uh, Emmy or something called Amen, and it was in the movie Lilies of the Field. Wow! And uh, and it went Amen, 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 and then skipped through in for God love and rock and roll. And he says, Does "That sound too much like that Amen song?" I said, yeah, it's not just like it. <laughs> but the melody changes, 
you know, at the end of the at the or whatever, at being a high school dropout and a rock and roll drummer. Oh, stop! You got plenty of credentials. Well, whatever. You you, you, you it was hard to you, you uh, but you you said we can do something with it. Yeah, so we we started recording it. We recorded the bass, and, you know, organ and drums at our house, at Casley's house in the living room. And then we took it in the studio, gave a cassette of it to the horn band and put them in a room and let them rehearse it. And then we got some black girls and white girls to sing on it. And that was a record. And we just signed it. After we got the record done, we signed a deal with uh, a local record company. Uh, Westbound. Westbound. Yeah. And uh, they had just signed a national distribution deal. And so it became a hit. It got played, and it was number three in Detroit, which ain't bad. The Supremes had a number one, and Marvin Gaye was number two, and we made number three. Holy. It was a subsidiary offshoot of Motown? I, I know Coffee worked for Dennis Coffee worked for them briefly. Well, Westbound was trying to be a, you know, they were trying to be a competitor. To, right. But I just want to read. I, I, I have to read this to you. There's a comment um, on a music website that uh, sells records, and this is this is the the single that you cut. God love and God love and rock and roll, and work me tomorrow. Yeah, um, and this cat uh, said. Recorded at Pioneer Recording Studio, Detroit, Michigan, in 1970, we got the choir by asking a group of kids at a nearby Burger King if they wanted to sing on the record. Oh, I don't know about all that. <laughs> You're not sure about that, but those no, no. So, so you Pioneer? Where was Pioneer? Was because you so at that point though, you didn't have a, a record label. You just no. You went in and oh, well, yeah. Cassidy, our manager, took it to a local uh that Westbound Records and and they when they heard it they said, Yeah, let's go with it. Because they had just signed a national distribution deal. And uh I don't know who they signed with, but Anyway, it became a hit, and we did get sued. You did, right? I mean, were you getting calls from people like, oh, my God, I'm hearing this song in Florida and, and the West Coast? Did it get all over the country? Yeah, it was, you know, being, I think it, it only got to be uh, uh, around 15, 13 rated in the country, but with that, 
That's pretty good. It was number one in some markets. St. Louis, of course, Tulsa, and uh, various places. You must have come back. So I just before I let you go, I mean, when you – did you guys wind up going back to Tulsa, and were you treated like heroes at that point when you had that hit? Well, somewhat, yes. And uh, – but we we – we didn't come. We didn't move back. No, no. But I mean, you obviously were touring. You had plenty of a budget to tour. I would assume. Well, somewhat. Yeah, it somewhat. Was, somewhat. It crazy because we had that hit single, but we didn't have an album, and right. we were trying to record an album at the same time. And I know one big mistake. <laughs> we got had a call from. God, what's his name? Dick Clark. Hmm. And they wanted us to be on the show. Well, that meant we had to go to uh, had to go to LA or to Hollywood. And I I told Cassley, our manager, I said, We can't go. We can't do any more gigs. We still gotta finish this album. And so I turned down the Dick Clark deal. I'm sorry, he wanted he wanted you to be in the house band there, or just it was a one-off thing? Just a one-off thing. Yeah, that you know, looking back, I mean, you know, hindsight's 2020. So you, yeah. did, so when 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 this song did this song eventually get pressed on an actual LP and, and was it still catching fire at that time? Yeah, we we finally finished the album, and uh, I don't know what it did. That's <laughs> too long ago, but uh, that was on an album just called Tea Garden and Van Winkle on Westbound, and uh, it stayed in the top forty for how many years? Oh, I don't know. I don't think. It didn't stay on there that long. Not that long, yeah. Yeah, but well, it was we, fun to hear on the radio. <laughs> I, I have to, I mean, that's the most magical time of, you know, even going back to Catfish and Dallas Hodge. I mean, they, they, you could pick up Canadian radio stations in Detroit and they'd be playing that stuff. Yeah. 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 It said, uh, God Love and Rock and Roll. Borrowed heavily from Amen, peaked at number 22 on the Billboard Top 100, and number seven in Canada in 1970. Yeah. We played a lot in Canada. Wow, it says uh, their single, Everything's Gonna Be All Right, a.k.a. Shoes, released the same year, was covered by, among others, The Temptations on their Live at London Talk of the Town album. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, you can't get a better compliment than that, man. I don't think there's any money in the world that can go higher than that. Well, I don't know. I didn't. We didn't see much money. Of course, we're not in it for the money, right? <laughs> the fact, yeah. that, the, the fact, the fact that the Temps were covering a Tea Garden and Van Winkle tune is out of hand. That's an insanely classic. Anyway, hey, it was quite a ride, and and. So many gigs we played uh, locally out of Detroit. Seeger was always the 
kind of the head guy. Well, I, I want to save that. I want to save that for set two. Can we? Can we do set two yeah. maybe in a week or? Is that cool? Because I we got more to do. Okay, sounds it was, good. You made my day, man. I'm going up to see. Uh, I don't know if you ever uh, cross paths with this band, but I know you know who they were. I'm going to see Tower of Power tonight. Oh yeah. Yeah, David Garibaldi, one of a dear friend of mine, great drummer too. But, um, right. David, man, thank you for making my day, man. You, you're you're helping keep a bright light in this world. And uh, I had a ball, so we'll do it again. All right, brother. Thank All right, you my so man. Much. All right, be good. Bye-bye now. Bye.